to stay to the side here for just a minute because I'm going to show you some slides before we get into the part of the message itself. If you were here last Sunday, uh, hopefully you remember that uh, we looked at some of the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. I told you there would be a part two today. So I begin by reminding us of Hebrews 13.7 from last week. Remember your leaders, probably referring to those who have died and gone to heaven, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Remember that verse, Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, consider the outcome of the way of life, imitate their faith. And we attempted to do that last week using the example of Jonathan Edwards. So to begin part two today, let me give you just a little more biographical information on him. We mentioned that the church he pastored in Northampton, Massachusetts, he went there when he was 23 years old as assistant to his grandfather. His grandfather died three years later after pastoring that church for 60 years. We'll go on to the next, yeah, hold it right there. That's, that's what the church in the town would have looked like 150 years after he was there, but that is the church, the church building where he was the pastor. He became the senior pastor. He was there for a total of 25 years, and it was during those 25 years that the Great Awakening took place across New England, George Whitfield coming over from England as well. It was also during that time that he preached his most famous sermon. Uh, also, it's one of the most famous sermons in American history and all of church history. Anybody know what the title of that would be? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I'm, I don't look it, I know, but I'm actually celebrating 50 years out of high school this year. When I was in high school, we had an English literature textbook that included an excerpt of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I have a feeling that's probably not happening these days. Well, Jonathan Edwards was not known as a great orator. Uh, he didn't shout. There's nothing dramatic or theatrical about his preaching. In fact, he pretty much just read his sermons. He wrote them out on scraps of paper, often while he was riding his horse. Uh, his wife sewed those together for him, and he'd just take his little booklet into the pulpit with him. I let my wife off the hook. I use a three-ring binder so she doesn't have to sew my notes together. Well, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God was preached in a church down in Connecticut, it was actually the second time he gave it. He had preached it to his own congregation up in Massachusetts a few weeks before that, but with little to no effect. But this time in Connecticut, it so convicted the listeners that they were crying out to God for his mercy. And In fact, Jonathan Edwards had to ask them to quiet down so that he could be heard to continue on preaching his message. But despite his impact through the Great Awakening all over New England, he was actually voted out of his church after 25 years over the issue of serving communion to non-believers. He was against that. Most of his people thought, what's the big deal? Just let him take it. The vote was actually 230 to 23, 10 to 1 against him to get him out of the church. Well, let's go to the next slide. He ended up moving 35 miles west to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which was at the edge of the frontier back then. Here on the map, you can see kind of the layout of the land. Stockbridge would be right close to the border of New York State. Actually, excuse me a second, I had to put a lozenge in my mouth and it's getting in my way. Let me get rid of it. There we go. Judy and I actually had the opportunity. My wife Judy's here with us today. She was able to come. We had the opportunity 45 years ago probably to actually visit Stockbridge and visit the church that's there today that he would have pastored, different building, but it's the, it's the church. They proudly show that he was the pastor here way back. 
though the pastor that gave us a little tour of the building let us assured us that we obviously don't teach and preach the kind of things that Jonathan Edwards would have preached and taught back in those days. It's a very liberal UCC church. But anyway, so here he comes to be the pastor. We'll go to the next picture. You'll see a picture of the mission house in Stockbridge. They didn't live there. Actually, the first missionary, Edwards was the second missionary. The first missionary actually built this house. He died. The widow was living there when the Edwards family arrived. They lived in the original house that that family had had, which there's no picture of that. So, but this, this church, uh, this house still exists from back in those days. So, Edwards became the pastor of the village church. He was missionary to the local Indians. The Mo Mohican Indians lived in that area. We claim him as an RHMA missionary if he was around today. But it was actually during this time in Stockbridge that he wrote his, his most significant theological and philosophical books. He's known as one of the greatest theologians of all, Amer of all church history. And most of those books, all those books are still in print today. So after seven years as a small town pastor, he was asked to become the president of Princeton University, which at the time was called the College of New Jersey. So let's go to the next slide. This is the president's house, still in existence today, that he would have moved into, he and his family back then. He only served for six weeks, only lived in that house for six weeks, because shortly after going down there, he received a smallpox vaccination as an example to his students, and he actually died from it a few weeks later. He was only 54 years old. Okay, next, next picture, you'll see his tombstone there in Princeton, New Jersey. So he moved in January, he was inaugurated as president in February, and he died in March. Let me just say a word about his family. He and his wife had 11 kids and they all lived, which was pretty unusual in those days, at high infant mortality rate. One of his daughters was married, was engaged to be married to David Brainerd. You know that name, David Brainerd? David Brainerd was a missionary to the American Indians there in the Northeast. He was a remarkable young man, remar remarkably mature and spiritually mature for his age. He kept a diary that his, what would have been his future father-in-law, Jonathan Edwards, actually compiled into a book. That diary is still in print today. David Brainerd died of tuberculosis at the age of 29. Edwards' daughter, who would have been the, fian the fiance at that point, caught the TB herself, taking care of him, and she died. Another daughter was married to the second president of Princeton, Jonathan Edwards was the third. That son-in-law died of malaria, created the opening for Edwards to go. And that daughter, like her dad, also died of a smallpox vaccination. All right, one more slide. That daughter and husband had a son that you've all heard of. What was the most famous duel in American history? Vice President Aaron Burr killing former Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton. Aaron Burr was Jonathan Edwards' grandson. He was only two years old when Edwards died, so Edwards wouldn't have known what happened 46 years later. But that's the black sheep of the family. Let me tell you the good news. Historians figured out by the turn of the 20th century, 118 years ago, the Edwards descendants included 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 66 doctors, a dean of a medical school, 80 politicians, including, of course, Aaron Burr. But better than all that, there were 100 foreign missionaries, numerous other full-time pastors and Christian workers in the family tree. All right, you may, one last slide here. You may remember that there were 70 resolutions that he came up with as a young pastor. Last, year, last time, they related to the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, resolving to love your neighbor. 
and that's the end of the slides. You can shut that off, thanks. And I'm going to move over here to the center so we don't play favorites one side or the other congregation. Whoops. All right. Am I still close enough? You're picking me up here. All right. So with all that behind, today's resolutions are going to deal with what Christ called the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Most of Edward's resolutions deal with our walk with the Lord, our relationship to him, our loving him with all our heart and soul and mind. And it was difficult to pare the list down to just a few, and I hope you all got a handout. As you can see on that handout, I didn't do too well. Last week we only looked at three of them. This week we got 13. But don't worry, the message is the same length, okay? We're going to deal with these resolutions in four groups. Four groups. So group number one. Resolution 7, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Look at number 19, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. In Christian circles, we use the word imminent, I-M-M-I, imminent, to mean something that could happen any time. Uh, not necessarily soon, but any time. My death is imminent. Uh, I could die any day, any moment of any day, maybe not for another 25 years. Christ's return is imminent. He could come back today, any moment of any day, maybe not for another 25 years, but right now, the biblical trumpet could sound, signaling Christ's return. And Jonathan Edwards resolved to live every day as if this hour could be the last hour of his life on earth. Look at number 52. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Remember, he was only 19, 20 years old when he wrote all these resolutions. Number 17. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Let me remind you of two things that the Bible teaches about life and death. Number one, this world is not our home. We believers are strangers and pilgrims, strangers and exiles, sojourners. And number two, life is short. No matter how long we live in the light of eternity, life is infinitely short. Jonathan Edwards himself only made it to age 54. But based on these resolutions, I'd say he had a pretty good handle on this issue. And young people his age, when he wrote these, typically don't think about such things. You know, we usually have to hit middle age before we start taking seriously our mortality. And the sad reality, of course, is some young people don't make it that far. Look at the last resolution in this section. Resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Well, that seems kind of morbid, doesn't it? Kind of an unhealthy preoccupation with death. Jonathan Edwards would probably argue that it's keeping things in proper perspective. And the Bible would support that. I've had a, a, the opportunity to officiate quite a few funerals over the years, and a verse that I always include in a funeral service is Ecclesiastes 7.2, which says this. It is better to go to the house of mourning, M-O-U-R-N, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this, body in the casket, this is the end of all mankind, and the living 
will take it to heart. In other words, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. Why? Because a funeral reminds us of our mortality. And as we take that to heart, it'll help us keep a proper perspective, keep right priorities. Remember what Moses prayed in Psalm 90, and, and he lived to be 120 years old. Moses prayed, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Lord, help me to wisely use the days allotted to me, knowing they could come to an end anytime, even today. Well, turn with me your, in your Bibles to the Apostle Paul's familiar words in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Uh, beginning in the middle of verse 20, Paul has expressed his hope and prayer that Christ will be honored in Paul's death, in Paul's body, whether by life or by death. Remember that Paul's writing this from prison. And look what he says in the very familiar verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul wanted to get on home to heaven, his final destination. He was a, he was a stranger in exile here. But he knew he still had some work to do before he got to go. Jonathan Edwards had a healthy biblical perspective on death, and included with that was a quest for holiness, knowing that he could die any time, Resolution 7, Christ could return any time, Resolution 19, and when that happened, he wanted his final hour on earth to be one that honored the Lord. And in the meantime, Resolution 17, he was determined to live his life in such a way that if he did get to attain old age, he would not have any regrets, wishing he could do it over, do it differently a second time around. God help us to have that kind of attitude and desire and perspective. May he keep us from the attitude of the rich man in Luke 12. Remember what he was doing? He was so busy tearing down his barns and building bigger ones to store all his goods, acting as if he was, acting as if he was going to live forever. And what did God say to him? You fool. You fool, today you're going to die and leave behind your barn full of goods. And Christ adds a postscript to that parable saying this, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Some of you may remember the old chorus, may I do each day's work for Jesus with eternity's values in view. Did you ever sing that as a kid? My family had a plaque on the wall in our home when I was growing up and it had the reminder, only one life, Will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. All right, let's move on to the next set of resolutions. Number 21. Resolved never to do anything which if I should see in another, I should count a just occasion to despise him for, or to think any way the more meanly of him. Meanly meaning less. Think less of him. Have you ever gotten mad at someone, some driver for cutting you off in traffic? Uh, just like you cut off somebody else a couple miles back? Have you ever looked down your nose at someone who seems to have no self-control when it comes to his eating habits, while at the same time you sit in front of the television or the internet night after night feeding on garbage because you have no self-control? These are just a couple of suggestions of the point that Jonathan Edwards is trying to make. Don't be a hypocrite. 
Remember, Christ seemed to save his most scathing denunciations for hypocrites, particularly religious hypocrites. Going on to the other two resolutions in this group, number 54, whenever I hear anything spoken in conversation of any person, if I think it would be praiseworthy in me, resolved to endeavor to imitate it. 69, resolved always to do that which I shall wish I had done when I see others do it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. This is the end of the book. It's an interesting list of names here. People that the Apostle Paul is greeting, a couple dozen altogether. It's a list that we probably skip over pretty quickly. But I want us to take a little closer look at the description of these people. The descriptions of these people. Verse 1, Romans 16, verse 1. Phoebe. What's it say about Phoebe? She was a servant of the church. Verse 2, she was a patron. Great help to many, including Paul. Verse 3, Priscilla and Aquila. Your, your translation may say Prisca and Aquila. That's the same as Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila. They were fellow workers. So is Urbanus down in verse 9. Fellow workers. We first meet uh, Priscilla and Aquila back in eight, Acts 18. Remember when Paul went to Corinth on his second missionary journey. Well, here in verse 4, Paul tells us that that husband and wife risked their necks for his life. Go on to verse 5. Epinatus is beloved. Verse 8. Ampliatus is beloved. Verse 9. Stachus is beloved. Verse 12. Persis is beloved. That word indicates being a dear friend. And though they're all unknown to us otherwise, other than this, these verses right here, obviously they were supportive of Paul and the work of the church. Verse 6, Mary worked hard. Verse 12, beloved Persis worked hard. Also verse 12, Tryphena and Tryphosa were workers in the Lord. Go back to verse 7, Andronicus and Junia were fellow prisoners, well known to the apostles. This was possibly a husband and wife. Junia could be a woman or a man's name. What to say? They didn't desert Paul, though it cost them their freedom. Look at verse 10, Apellus. Apellus was approved in Christ, tested and approved, the NIV says. This was a high compliment. It was something that Paul desired for Timothy. If you look at 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul desired it for himself. 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The word disqualified is the opposite of Apellus being approved in Christ. Verse 13, Rufus' mother. Scholars can't be sure, but Rufus could very well be the son of Simon of Cyrene. Remember Simon of Cyrene? Simon is the man who carried Christ's cross on Good Friday. In which case, Rufus' mother, here in verse 13, could be Simon's wife. It says she was like a mother to the Apostle Paul. What a nice compliment. So what's all this have to do with Jonathan Edwards and his resolutions? Well, simply this. As I look around the church and the Christian community at large, here in central Illinois, across America, around the world, I'm going to see and hear of people who are servants, who are great helpers, who are hard workers, who are willing to face persecution and imprisonment for their faith, who are pursuing a depth and maturity that would have the stamp of God's approval. I'm going to see them, and I'm going to hear others talking about such people. 
Jonathan Edwards would say, I need to take note of those people and strive to make those qualities true in my life, in my walk with God. As Paul would say, imitate them as they imitate Christ. Paul told the church in Philippi, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And let me just add a couple of other thoughts before we move on from this. Number one, we're talking character and spiritual qualities here, fruit of the spirit. That's what we're to imitate. We're not, we're not talking talent. You know, don't, don't insist on doing or being something you're not gifted and capable of doing and being. You know, if, if singing a solo or fixing a broken window aren't within your abilities, then you need to go volunteer for some ministry that you can do and do it well. And the second thing I would say is be sure our motives are pure in this, that pride is not a part of it. You know, I don't want to be looked upon as a great helper like Phoebe back in verse 1 just so that it'll feed my ego or it'll, it'll make me look important in other people's eyes here in the church. Rather, I simply want to be the best helper I can be because I know that honors the Lord and it, and it helps the ongoing work of his church, of this church. Seek to imitate others as we see them imitate Christ. All right, let's move on to the third group. Number 37, resolve to inquire every night as I'm going to bed wherein I've been negligent, what sin I've committed, and wherein I've denied myself, notice it's not just the failures, but successes also, also at the end of every week, month, and year. Number 41, resolve to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year, wherein I could possibly in any respect have done better. Number three, resolve to strive to my utmost every week to be brought higher in religion, to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the doctrine of sanctification, being set apart to God. You know, when we're saved, we're positionally set apart from sin unto God. Someday when we get to heaven, we'll be ultimately set apart from sin. How wonderful that'll be. In the meantime, we have this progressive experiential sanctification where we're to become more and more like Christ as we mature in our faith, increasingly set apart from sin unto God. 2 Peter 3.18 tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where the title of our message comes from this morning, Growing in Grace. Christian life is not static. We're either growing and maturing or going backwards, backsliding. It's a battle. And unfortunately, the battle will never be fully won until we get to heaven and are finally freed from our sin nature. You know, Paul talks in Galatians 5 about that battle with the flesh, the importance of walking in the spirit to fight that battle. In Ephesians 6, he talks about fighting that battle with the whole armor of God. Jonathan Edwards acknowledges the problem. Look in the next resolution, 56. Resolve never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. It's a never-ending battle. May we fight it to the end. Turn with me back to, Phile to Philippians again, this time chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul begins verse 12 by saying, Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. In other words, he hadn't reached that ultimate sanctification, that sinless perfection. Let's keep reading there in the middle of verse 12. But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Verse 13, brothers... I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You need to take to heart Jonathan Edwards' example of examining ourselves every day. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 we should specifically examine ourselves before we take communion. He goes on a couple verses later to say that if we judge ourselves now, we won't have to be disciplined for those sins later. Now, a lot of families have a tradition of measuring their kids' height every year on their birthdays, see how much they've grown in the past year, mark it on the chart or the wall or the door jam. Jonathan Edwards says, well, let's do that same thing with our spiritual bodies, see how much they've grown, how much progress we've made in our spiritual life. And not just once a year, but every month, every week, every day. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. We'll pick up in the middle of verse 7. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Train yourself for godliness. Verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. A, a dedicated athlete is always in training, regularly examining himself, testing his progress. How much more important, how infinitely more important for each of us believers to be training ourselves in godliness and regularly examining our progress. And not just for temporal value, but for eternal value. Paul says promise for the present life, also for the life to come with eternity's values in view. Jonathan Edwards was determined to examine, to judge himself daily, and weekly, and monthly, and yearly to see how he was doing, growing in grace, becoming more and more separated from sin and the world and to God, becoming more and more like Christ, progressive sanctification. Well, let's move on to the last resolution, which ties into this, number 63. On the supposition that there, was never, there never was to be but one individual in the world at any one time who was properly a complete Christian in all respects of a right stamp, meaning his reputation, his character, having Christianity always shining in its true luster, appearing excellent and lovely from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, here comes the resolution, resolved to act just as I would do if I strove with all my might to be that one who should live in my time. Now, Jonathan Edwards presents a hypothetical case here on the supposition, was his first words. Let's just suppose it could be possible to be a complete, mature, perfect Christian while still in this life. And let's further suppose that only one Christian at a time in the whole world could reach that perfection. God's help, I'm going to strive to be that person, even if he doesn't and can't exist. There was a specific time and place in history when that actually happened, one person was properly a complete Christian, who would that have been? Christ himself. But for the rest of us, it's a worthy goal to strive for, even though we know it'll never be perfectly attainable while in this life. In Romans 8.29, Paul tells us we're predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. In other words, God's chosen purpose for us during this pilgrimage here on earth is that we become more and more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the normal Christian life is one of being transformed into the image of the Lord with ever-increasing glory, from one degree of glory to another higher one. Those are kind of hard words to understand, aren't they? In other words, as we gaze at his glory, as we concentrate our thoughts and desires and actions on his perfections, 
we become more and more like him, progressive sanctification. Back in Philippians 3 again, we're straining forward toward a goal of Christ-likeness. Straining forward is not going to just happen. Train yourself for godliness, Paul told Timothy. It takes work on our part, hard work. But with the Lord's help, remember the verse I quoted last Sunday from the end of Colossians 1, where Paul says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I toil with his energy, training myself for godliness. And I mentioned last week that as Jonathan Edwards got a little older, a little more mature in his faith, he realized he was trying a little too hard to keep all these resolutions in his own strength. I toil with his energy that works within me. Well, turn with me to one last verse, 1 Timothy 2.21. 1 Timothy 2.21, uh, not, not Timothy, Peter, 1 Peter 2.21. 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Christ set an example. We are to follow in his steps. Now the context here is suffering unjustly, suffering for righteousness' sake, but the broader principles being like Christ. Now this verse was the basis of a best-selling novel that was written back in 1896, titled In His Steps, a book that's still in print. You can go online probably and read it for free. Remember the fad that came out of that book a few years ago, several years ago now? WWJD, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Which could be a legitimate question to ask. Though it's become pretty trivialized in its popularity and mocked by the world. What would Jesus do? Well, Jonathan Edwards was determined, he was resolved to pursue a Christ-like life, to do what Jesus would do, regardless of what anyone else was doing, striving with God's help to be as closely conformed to the image of his Son as possible, despite the limitations of this sinful, mortal body. Some of you may remember the story of D.L. Moody, hearing the British evangelist Henry Varley say these words, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. And when Moody heard that, in the spirit of Jonathan Edwards, he resolved to be that man. And God used him in a mighty way and continues to use him through the worldwide ministry of Moody Bible Institute, including our son and daughter-in-law who are missionaries in Malaysia, both graduates of Moody. Resolved to be that one who should live in my time. Well, as we look at these four groupings of resolutions, I, I close with the prayer that God would help us, whatever our age, whatever our lot in life, wherever we are on that scale of progressive sanctification, may God help us to have the resolve of Jonathan Edwards and D.L. Moody, a resolve to be men and women of God who, group number one, keep our mortality ever before us. Number two, seek to imitate others, as we see them imitate Christ. Number three, regularly examine our progress and growing in grace. And number four, strain forward, press on with his energy toward the goal of being like Christ, doing what Jesus would do. May we be imitable men and women of God, imitable, worthy of imitation, imitable men and women who by loving God with all our heart and soul and mind, thus fulfilling the first and great commandment, we can then, in turn, 
be used of him to touch others, thus fulfilling the second most important, love your neighbor as yourself. And God help us.